Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. At the recording of this episode, we're all reeling from the black swan event of the coronavirus. In less than a month, global indices have fallen over 30%, widespread quarantines have been mandated, and we're all wondering what the new normal is going to be. Perhaps the biggest question for business owners is, how are you going to manage through this? And specifically, how are you going to manage your finances through this? With that, I was encouraged to hear the optimistic words and advice from today's guest, Ilya Zagovic. Ilya is the co-founder and CEO of DBD Partners, a lower mid-market investment bank. He and his team focus on deals that are between 20 and 80 million in revenue, both on the buy and sell side of the transaction. But I can tell you, the information in this episode is applicable to anybody who has a business. Now, aside from his professional focus, he's actually quite an interesting fellow. He's gone from growing a company up to 10,000 employees from what was just an office of a few, to being overweight and smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, to now competing in over five Ironman competitions, several ultra marathons, and all of this is supporting his passion of skiing. Coming back to his professional experience, Earlier shares with us what companies should be doing now given the economic turmoil. Perhaps the biggest point is that you need to be proactive and take action early. We hear a number of lessons from Elia, as well as how to properly approach raising capital, with a specific focus on raising debt financing for your company. I enjoyed this episode as we went deep into the inner workings of how a debt investor thinks versus that of an equity investor. So I hope you enjoy this one, as I know I sure did. And as a final note, if you find this interview valuable, please send a note to Elia or myself and share this with your network. Your support is much appreciated. On the line, I have Ilya Zagovic of DBD Partners. You're the founder and CEO of that. Ilya, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here, Corey. You know what I like to do is I like to start off our conversations with a brief introduction about yourself, an elevator pitch of sorts, so we can frame up our discussion. And you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of interesting you experience you have, both from the finance side, but then you're also an ultra endurance athlete, as I understand, a big mountain skier and an engineer. So I think we'll have a great conversation here. But what do you say? I'll, I'll pass it over to you, and you could provide some background and history about yourself, and then we'll talk finance, especially in these very interesting times. Yeah, thank you. So as you mentioned, I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of DVD Partners, which is a middle market focused investment bank. But I got here not by the usual finance career path. As you mentioned, I started mechanical engineering back in Mexico City, where I'm from. Started working as I was studying in field marketing or trade marketing company that did 
the least sexy part of marketing, but the most useful part of marketing. We provided merchandising services and demo services to stores and major CPG brands, just Procter & Gamble. Walmart was one of our clients. And I started working there as an analyst in one of the accounts and worked myself up until eventually in 2007, I ended up buying the previous management or the previous ownership from the company, did a management buyout, which back then I didn't even know what that meant. And then we rolled off the company. We had a, a bunch of subsidiaries in Central America, eventually exited that business in 2016. And at the same time, uh, I think it was around 2009, we started a small lending business, first lending money to our employees. And then we expanded that a little bit, which was really interesting to understand how the banking and the penetration of the banking services in Mexico and Latin America in general is super low and the lack of financial education that third world countries have. Eventually, we exited that business as well. And as of 2015, I was hired to start the U.S. division of one-to-one corporate finance, which is a Spanish-based global middle market or lower middle market focused investment bank. Started, as I said, in September 2015. First employee in the U.S., we grew that business to be probably one of the most profitable branches of the firm. And last year in April, one of the the managing directors, who is now my managing partner and myself, decided to spin off and start DBD Partners. And that's kind of how I got here. And yeah, as you mentioned, in my free time, I enjoy doing ultra-endurance sports. Funny enough, it started because in 2008, I was heavily overweight and smoking around two packs of cigarettes a day and went down to Argentina to ski and I couldn't move on my skis. And when I got back to Mexico, I just hired a personal trainer and just, you know, put my head down, started working out four to six times a week. And I think like a year later, I was running my first half marathon and that progressed into triathlons and that progressed into Ironmans and that progressed into ultra marathons, but all to keep my biggest passion in life is skiing. So it's all to keep me fit for the ski season, which this year, unfortunately, was caught early. But that's a brief, or not that brief, uh, interest <laughs> to myself. What a story there. And I have to say from the research I've done, I think you're pretty humble as from some of the successes you've had with the merchandising company. At, correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point you had 10,000 employees or consultants or partners who were part of that company. Yeah, as I said, we're doing merchandising and outsourced sales and marketing services. So yeah, we had around 10,000 employees in six countries, including Mexico and all of the countries in Central America. Yeah, a lot of field personnel. Yeah. Outsourced salespeople, you know, we were touching around 250,000 points of sale per week. You know, the small mom and pop shops down in, in Latin America and Mexico still represented at that time over 60% of the total retail space. So we had salespeople and merchandisers that would go to hundreds of thousands of stores every day or every week to take orders and organize a product and set up POP material and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a lot of employees. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the point I was aiming to make was you're certainly humble because that is a, definitely a meaningful operation. And then moving into one-to-one and now DVD Capital or DVD Partners, given the nature of the podcast, I really want to dig into and to understand your experience in around 
financing and what you guys do at DVD. Can you give us a brief on your partnership there and the kinds of financing you do? Absolutely. Yeah. So DVD Partners and has a subsidiary that's DVD Capital, but the company at large, what we do is we are a middle market focused investment bank. And by middle market, we're working with companies that are 250 and lower million dollars in revenue. And we provide M&A services. So we work as advisors, both on buy and sell side mandates around 50-50. of our M&A business is sell-side advisory and 50% is buy-side advisory. And that represents around 50% of our total business revenue-wise. And then we also do capital formation. And what we consider capital formation is we raise growth equity and equity for businesses that are in a growth stage. We don't usually work with venture deals, although we've done some and, and some of our managing directors have a lot of experience on venture, but our focus is more on companies, you know, that have a revenue stream, a constant revenue stream, have a couple of years of growth, a few years of growth, have positive cash flow, and they're looking for money to either expand faster or grow into a new division, or maybe they're looking to do some acquisitions, but they don't have the cash themselves. So they're looking for project financing and stuff like that. So that's what we do on the capital formation side of things. And then we have a big practice doing debt restructuring, working with clients in different situations with different needs or financing needs that at one point on time, they hired some sort of debt facility. Just sometimes, you know, you're growing so fast that you take whatever money comes your way Unless And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't have the best conditions or the best rates or anything like that, but you have to take it anyway. A few years down the road, you start to feeling the pains of, of that capital and you need to get refinanced. So we do stuff like that. We also work with companies that for one or other reason, you know, they're approaching really quickly and really scary situations all the way to the verge of bankruptcy if they can't refinance or, or get more capital. And mostly... It's a growth-triggered bankruptcy, right? They're growing so fast and they're running out of cash so quickly that they might not be able to continue with their obligations. The business fundamentally is good and the structure is good, but you know, you're growing faster than you're able to bring cash in to fuel that growth. So we work with those kinds of companies and either get them out of their current capital structure into more favorable terms, or we get them you know, their first round of institutional funds. That's what we do. So, and on the DVD capital side of things, that's a small fund that we've raised both with our money and some friends and family of ours, where when we see really good opportunities, we invest ourselves or we co-invest. We're never the principal and we're never the lead, but we co-invest either on debt deals that we really like or an equity deal that we really like. I see. And somewhere I'd really like to go with our conversation and to build off of the experience that you have here is given the recent market conditions and what we've seen happen in the markets with COVID and I mean, just perhaps even unprecedented situations, what's your take on what is going to happen with the state of debt in the markets and, and what are companies coming to you? What problems are you seeing and are going to start seeing more and more of? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great question. I don't know if I have a concise and 
right answer to, but I can definitely share with you what we're seeing and what I personally think it's, it's going to happen. And, you know, we don't do anything with public markets, so I'm not going to get into what's going to happen with the stock market or anything like that. I have honestly no idea, and I haven't talked with anybody that really does. But I'll tell you what we're seeing in the debt market, the cash market, and, and the equity market. On the deals we're working on right now, surprisingly enough, everything is business as usual. Maybe people are taking a little bit longer to get back to you. You know, in our industry, emails get answered in 30 minutes, usually during a normal weekday or even weekend. Now it's maybe taking a day or two to get back, but we're seeing the same. The deals are moving along and there's no nothing really happening, but these are deals that you know were already in the making. What do we think is going to happen with the markets and the liquidity in general? It's a really interesting question. There's a lot of, especially in, in the sector that we work, right? As I said, we're working with companies that are 250 or lower in revenue, million dollars in revenue, which mostly the investors are private equities, family offices, high net worth individuals. And those firms have committed capital that they need to deploy regardless. And we're not seeing that money being plugged away from those sources yet. Now, it's still very early in the game, and we don't know how long this is going to last, right? I'm not trying to predict that or make any assumptions of that, but we're not seeing that change. Now, this segment of the industry, the private equity or the investment in private companies, has been growing exponentially since 2008. So the crisis, or 2009, the crisis, past crisis, kind of fueled this. And my theory or, or my experience is a lot of people were looking to protect themselves from, you know, the volatility of the markets and equities and derivatives and so forth by getting into good old brick and mortar businesses. And at the same time, people that were running their companies or had been running their companies for 20, 30 years had already had, you know, a economic downturn in the 90s, have lived through the dot-com crash, and now the 2008, they were exhausted and they wanted to exit these businesses. And that created this private equity growth that we've been seeing for the last you know, 10, 12 years. It's been the biggest M&A market in history. And, and I, I've heard growth. some describe it as frothing in the sense that it's, yes. you know, it's a huge, huge competition just to get a deal. Yes. So, and that brings me to what I think it's going to happen. We were in a market that was a lot of money chasing very few deals because companies were thriving, markets were great, and you know, sellers were in a position where unless you pay me what I want for my company, which, I mean, last year, I think PitchBook's report said that the average multiple in the private equity world was around 12 times EBITDA, which is crazy high for small, mm. you know, medium companies. But when there's a lot of money and companies are thriving, you can think what's going to happen. It's We're going to see an inversion of that dynamic to the point where we had it in 2009 or 2010, where there was money out there chasing a lot of deals because companies 
unfortunately, are going to have a very hard time due to this reaction to the coronavirus. And as businesses start to suffer and start to lose revenue and all that, once they're going to have to look out for debt or other sorts of equity and investors. And that's what I think is going to happen. I don't know how that's going to affect the cost of capital, but you know, interest rates can't be lower than what they are right now, unless we go into a negative terrain, which I don't think the U.S. will. But yeah, that's what we're seeing. It's a really fascinating situation we have right now. And I mean, even to delve in on the history of the last, you know, since 2008, the last 12 years or so, when you look at the financial crisis and then the record low rates that came out of there, there's so much money that was out there. And then you have fund managers, private equity, family offices who are scrambling to find a place to put that money, which in turn, you had a frothing private market for private equity investments into obviously private deals. And in just the last month, we're now facing this incredibly difficult time to where, like as you mentioned, and somewhat summarizing, that we're going to see a big come off when it comes to the amount of revenues these companies are able to generate, the ability for them to pay back their debt obligations, the returns these private equity firms are able to get. And a lot of those, I would imagine, are levered private equity firms where they've been able to borrow more than just their equity stakes. What's going to happen and how would it look with, if I had a company that was doing $250 million and generally a strong balance sheet, but given the economic changes and perhaps you know a month or two of quarantine and on and on, what would it look like if I came to you and said I was doing 250 million and I might be doing 100 and I'm running into my covenants? How would you yeah. work with me on you know, taking a deal like that? What would that process look like? Yeah, for sure. And let's take the number and notch down to companies that are doing you know, 100 million and below, which is where 70 or 80% of our business comes from. And whereas, you know, most companies in the world are below that threshold. You know, if you're making a quarter of a billion dollars a year, you're pretty better off than most companies out there. And the banks will be throwing money at you. Your commercial bank is going to, you know, be calling you and, and trying to figure out how he can work with you. But let's talk about the company that's making 30, 40 million dollars in revenue and has a huge exposure to you know, any kind of downturn because they're going to start running out of cash. Their sales are probably down. As you said, slash it in half, but your expenses, your fixed costs are right, you know, staying there. When companies like that have come to us in the past, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of them coming to us, we would break the analysis in two parts. One is see what their current debt looks like, what their normalized cash flow will look like after everything stabilizes or when the new reality you know, settles and we know, okay, this is a new norm. How will their cash flow look like? What debt do you have right now? What are your covenants? And can we go find you debt that you can service with your cash flow that will allow you to grow your business? And if we think the answer to that is yes, then we'll go that route. And we'll, you know, there's plenty of non-bank banks out there that are lending money at higher interest rates than commercial banks, yes, 
but also lower covenants and are more flexible with lending capacities, et cetera. So that would be the first route if you can service that level of debt. Because I'm of the belief that you know debt is always cheaper than equity, because at the end, you're not giving away a piece of your business or you're remaining with 100% of your business, but you're carrying some debt. But you need to be able to service it in order for that to be feasible, because if not, you're not going to be able to grow. If the answer is no, your current cash flow will not service the amount of debt you need, then we would go for a mix of equity and debt. And we would go find the right partner out there that can either provide part of the equity, but will let you get debt on the side and they'll take a second position. Or in the best case scenario, get an unitrench lender that can do all stacks of capital. That's how we would approach it. And that's how we approach it regardless of what's going on. I don't think we we should change the way we analyze our clients' positions just because we're in, in a time of crisis. Because, you know, it's a responsible professional way of, of doing it and we're not going to change that. Yeah. Yeah. What about the time frames? I mean, it's, I would imagine for companies, it's in their best interest to be preemptive on this as much as you can, or at least proactive in the sense of taking action. But if I had a company that was formally doing 40, 50 million, or as we're discussing, and all of a sudden it's cut in half to potentially 20 million, because we don't know what's going to happen. And I came to you and said, I need to prepare potentially for the worst case. I need to increase my capital just in case this drags on longer. What's the time frame? And how long does it take for you to put together a story for your investors or your investor network and then market the deal out to them and get the paperwork and the terms and the, and the deal signed? How long does that take? Yeah, Corey, I think that's the best piece of advice you can give to anybody. And I really hope that everybody that's listening starts to think that way, because unfortunately, we are not by nature preventive. But I, that, what you just said is what people should be doing. And I know it, it, you said it as a question to me, not as an advice, but please, people, take it as an advice. <laughs> because yes, everybody right now should be, and by everybody, I mean you know CEOs and their CFOs and their COOs should be thinking right now, what is the new norm gonna look like once we get past this in a week, two weeks, 18 weeks, 18 months, we don't know, but what's the new norm gonna look like? And what's our cash position gonna be? And if you don't have a professional CFO, which a lot of companies, you know, below 100 million bucks don't have a professional CFO, reach out to a firm. We do this for our clients all the time. We're actually working with a couple of our clients right now that we were where we are in sales process, where my managing partner, Gregory Shalov, is jumping in and helping them figure out liquidity, et cetera. He's you know, been doing this for a long time and comes from big bank experience and has been doing CFO work. And we just reach out to, to trustworthy advisors and be like, this is our situation. What should we be looking at? On the time frame, look, I mean, we have the team and we have the resources. We usually can paint the story in one or two weeks. And we already have the relationships with the capital providers. And we've spent, you know, last week and this week just calling them back up and making sure they have enough resources to help our clients. And most of them have said, yeah, and we're ready to deploy capital and we're looking for opportunities. So yeah, you could be taking advantage of this and picking up the phone and refinancing your debt before you need it. Because, you know, when it hits hard, it's, 
it's not going to be the best time to do it. Do you think those who are looking to deploy this capital are going to be increasing their interest rates just from a risk perspective? And do you think that's going to be just opportunistic? And how would you gauge that if you're negotiating on behalf of a client and rates were, you know, let's just say 5% and I'm just throwing out a number and they're all of a sudden coming back with an 8 or a 9% just saying, listen, we don't understand what's going to happen in a month from now. So this is what we're going to do. Where do you negotiate on that? Yeah, for sure. The first part I would be like, look, I know that the cost of capital is as low as it's going to get and it just got cheaper. So you can't really push the interest rates higher on us just because you want to. I think part of what we do as advisors and any good investment banker out there will do is when we're painting that story, we're also painting the risk profile. And look, we would not take a company out to raise debt if we don't think that the company can hold that amount of debt without risk. That's when we would take them for a multi-trench structure, part of it in equity, part of it in debt and, and some other vehicles. Why? Because we turn around to these capital providers all the time. This is not, it's not me sitting at my office trying to figure out how to fix the one-time problem for my business. We do this for a living. And if I start showing bad deals to capital providers with, and, you know, boggling around with a risk profile and showing things that are not real, those capital providers are going to stop answering the phone when we call. And I can't afford that. You know, we leave from our reputations. So they know what we're showing them is good and we would negotiate with them accordingly. And mm. if it's not good, I would not go to a debt provider. And I would not do that to my client either because I don't want him to get in trouble. I would say, hey, you know, it's time to probably get somebody in your capital stack that can provide money for the long term and get you in a stronger balance sheet position. There's an interesting thing here that I think the listener should take away is that when working with an investment bank or an advisor like yourself or DBD partners, you need to build a relationship on both sides there. And the point you're making is that the capital relationships you have, you don't want to erode those by coming in and grinding them down on rates because it's not going to help you in the long term or even get that relationship off on a good start. And so I think your clients would need to respect or understand that as well, but then also understand that you're looking at them first and foremost and saying, well, what is really realistic given the market conditions? You know, if doing an all debt deal is just not realistic, here's your options. And that's where you can, instead of having to go and try to grind somebody down on all debt at a lower rate, you would go to them and say, hey, here's a debt and equity offering that we think is realistic. I think that's what I'm taking away partially from what you're saying. And then yeah. just to add to that, sorry, I just wanted to point out something else is that in my world, I work to help companies paint the picture from an equity side and primarily an equity side only. And, and very, you know, frankly, in earlier venture companies and earlier public companies, by and large, we, as in those in the industry, tend to gloss over the risk factors. But I'm hearing from you when you're presenting a deal, and especially with debt, that risk factor and how you present the risk factor is a major component to that. It's not something that can just be glossed over. Yeah, completely. And let me answer that in two parts. First, the risk factor. 
Absolutely. When we're preparing the company to go raise debt or equity, we need to figure out what the risk profile is and how to work around it. Because the reality is we know that even if we want to gloss over it and make, you know, pretend that there's nothing there to see, the capital provider is going to look at the risk factor. And I'm always of the idea that if you know somebody's going to look at something or if you know there's an obstacle down, you know, the slope, prepare for it instead of being surprised by it. So, yeah, we think about it from the risk perspective. On the negotiation part, don't get me wrong. I mean, we go to war for our clients and we negotiate every step of the way. And if I know that the markets are at 5% and the debt provider comes at 8%, I'll call him off on it. And because, and that's why we don't go to one capital provider, we go to multiple capital providers and we're always having conversations with them. So we have a thermometer of where it is. But yeah, if the rates are 8%, they're 8% and I can't do anything to change it. But if the rates are 5%, I'll fight for the 5%. But also when you're negotiating a debt deal or you're selling a company or you're buying a company, there's much more to negotiate than a percentage or even an overall valuation. Gregory Shalom, my managing partner, always says, the secret is always in the structure because you might get a rate that's a half percentage higher or a valuation that's maybe you know half a turn lower on an EBITDA perspective, but you get the right structure in place and it's way more valuable. And by structure, I mean, what are your covenants? You know, when do you trigger them? What can they do if you trigger them? Who is subordinated to them? What kind of control do you want? Do they want on the company? What kind of decision making that they want on a sale of the company? What's the earnout like? Or is there or not an earnout? Do you have a tax benefit by structuring this way? Because sometimes we're so focused on, you know, I want nine times EBITDA that maybe eight times EBITDA with a more favorable structure on a tax basis and a less aggressive earnout on the part of the buyer, at the end of the day, gives you a better result. But we're so focused on what's the value, what's the value, what's the value that we forget about all of those or simple things like who pays for the advisors? How does that money flow, right? Is it going to come to your bank account first or it goes directly? Because if it goes directly, you get a tax break there. So those are the kinds of things that we look at from a negotiation perspective, both on debt and equity deals. I think... Some of the people who I've admired in the the business of finance often say that structure is king. And then earlier you said that you're of the belief that debt is always cheaper than equity, but I want to challenge that in the sense that debt's always cheaper than equity until you bring the covenants into it, because those covenants can be tremendously harmful or painful to the CEO or the entrepreneur if they finance wrong, even with only debt. So what do you see as, or what would your warnings be for CEOs when looking at covenants or negotiating those covenants? Like where, you know, I could think of, you know, an example of like death spiral financing where, and that's more for a public market and even like kind of, you know, vulture capital style penny stock debt offerings. But what kind of covenants do you look at and say, absolutely stay away from those or make sure you get this or make sure you follow this process? What advice would you have to ensure that management can make sure debt is always cheaper than equity and they don't get caught offside? 
Yeah, for sure. And, and I totally agree with you. That debt is always cheaper than equity as long as you have the right kind of debt. Look, it's really hard to say what covenants to stay away from and which ones to take because, once again, correctly written and correctly negotiated, you can take on any kind of covenant and badly written and badly negotiated, any covenant can be terrible for you. The devil is in the details, as they say. For example, if you have a cash covenant or a borrowing that's based on your borrowing base, make sure how are they calculating that borrowing base? Because what happens if you know you have to write off part of your inventory or part of your inventory tied to a commodity like sugar or steel or you know whatever commodity you want there and all of a sudden the price of that commodity drops? How is that going to affect your borrowing base and will that trigger a covenant? You have no control on it. Like you can control how much cash you have in the bank account or in your bank account, but you can't control the price of sugar because it's an open market. And if your covenants are tied to something like that, you might get in trouble with, you know, no control over it. Uh, That'd be so so fitting to to the world of oil right now and the commodity of oil just plummeted. So in that case, yeah, can you expand on that? What I'm hearing is, you know, a cash against a quoted currency of sorts, a quoted commodity. And that- Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Please carry on. And that's just one example uh, on that respect. And, you know, on, I think anything that has to do with corporate finance or finance in general, I think a key is to get really good advisors in place to help you negotiate or navigate for this thing. Because I've seen, you know, a lot of different things and a lot of different covenants and a lot of different triggers that at first glance, you know, if I had read the contract, I would be like, that sounds good, makes sense to me. But then when I see the after picture, when our client calls us because they already got in trouble, like, oh, I would have never thought that you can get in trouble because the price of oil dropped. But now I know. So next time I negotiate on behalf of a client, I know to cover for that. And if you add that to the experience of my managing directors and my managing partner, all of a sudden you have thousands of data points that we can bring to the negotiation table. Mm-hmm. And we add to that a corporate attorney with a lot of experience in turnaround and stuff like that. Now you have more data points. So surround yourself with people that do this for a living. Don't try to do it on your own. Because And bankers usually want you to do it on your own because they know that we will negotiate and we'll see things. But you know our fees are usually well paid for avoiding all of this mistake down the road. And if we do our job correctly, it's like, just like they were saying about the, you know, the virus, if we prevent correctly, we will think it was an overreaction and we'll never see the actual value of what we did. But if we do our job correctly, you will have no problems whatsoever. And you will think that financing is super easy. That's an interesting one. I think the two points there, one, yes, it's better to be perhaps overly cautious, the same way uh, perhaps we're doing now with, with the pandemic that we're going through. But then the second piece there you also touched on, and I think is important is in general, and I don't want to trash any investment bankers because I have investment banking friends and I've also had a lot of good guests who are bankers, but there can be a, a push from them to just try to get a deal done without taking time to very much properly advise on the ins and outs. 
as they're looking to clip their commissions and, and move on to the next deal if you've engaged yeah. with the wrong kind of banker. So I think that's a, a nice cautionary tale. I totally agree with you. Just as my logic with why I don't show bad deals to capital providers, we as in DVD partners are very, very conscious of what deals we take on. And we want to make sure we have an over 90% closing rate at DVD partners because we take a lot of time ahead of time thinking, is this a deal we can close? And around 80% of our business currently comes from referrals, meaning clients that we worked with on the past or capital providers that we worked on the past or attorneys that we worked on both sides of the table in the past. When one of their clients or their friends is looking for an investment banker to sell their business, to raise money, to get out of a bad debt deal, they just like call. I would love to say they say call Ilya. Unfortunately, they usually say call Gregory or call Sandy, which are the, the, the front line. <laughs> so they're, they're getting all of the fame, but it, yeah, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> uh, good man. Good man for sharing the credit. Now, just as we're pushing towards the end of time here, we've touched on a bit of the science of financing and talking about covenants and talking about rates and different aspects there, the, the financial components, the diligence that happens. But I also want to hear from you about more of the art of the deal, the art of the financing. And part of that, a question that I often ask is, have you seen CEOs before who pitch and get up in front of a room and absolutely command that room and people are throwing money at them? And what did they do differently than CEOs who have you seen move into a boardroom, pitch the deal, whether it be a debt or equity deal, and there's just crickets, absolute silence from the investors. When you look yeah. at the art of pitching, what have you seen that's great and what have you seen that's bad? Yeah. So, and I think, although they're not separate completely, but I think they're two different, investors are looking for two different things in each one of them. When you're pitching a debt deal or when you're negotiating with a debt provider, what the debt providers want to see is a complete and absolute control of the business from the CEO, the COO, and the CFO. They want to make sure that the CEO knows exactly what's going on with its business. He's on top of things. He knows his suppliers. He knows the market, meaning he will make the right decisions and that the money is to grow the business with logic and a strategic plan behind it. And that's what they want. So they actually want somebody that looks cautious and that they know if we give them a $20 million line of credit, that CEO is not going to go crazy and just buy new machinery or overstock their inventory or something like that. They're, they're going to take that money and use it wisely. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to project that. They don't really want the cavalier kind of CEO that tells them the story of how he's going to eat the world because that increments the risk. It might increment the reward as well, but when you're providing debt, you want to control your risk. Now, on the equity side, I think that the secret sauce is you need to make a point that you're running and growing this business because you believe in it and you're passionate about it, not because you think you can exit it at a high multiple. That's where I've seen the difference, especially like we don't do 
a lot of work on the venture market and we don't work with you know seed rounds and series a and, and and stuff like that when we are raising equity and growth equity the best success and honestly we only take on on clients when we get a feeling that the client wants to run this business and turn it into the best possible version of the business he can if down the road somebody comes and offers him a trillion dollars to buy him out of course he would consider it but he's not building and running the business to exit the business he's building and running the business for the long run those are the clients we want and those are the kinds of ceos that i've seen have the best success raising capital thank you for that because you know there's something that you touched on there which i actually have never fully appreciated and that is that when you're pitching for debt you're not pitching for growth or you're not pitching growth is what I'm hearing. Instead, if you're going in and you're pitching to a debt investor, they see the world differently than an equity investor. And they see it in a way of how calculated is this manager? How calculated are they in deploying the capital that I'm going to give them at six or 7%? And they don't give a shit, excuse my French, if they're going to see a, you know, the equity of the company grow five or 10 times. All they want to see is that their debt's going to be paid back and their interest yep. is going to be paid on time. And I actually never fully appreciated that until hearing that from you now. So thank you. Yeah, you got it completely right. That's absolutely right. When you're right. And when I was writing debt checks and when we do it with DVD Capital is I'm always of the mindset that you get your money back the day you write the check for the loan. If you did your homework, you're going to get your money back unless, you know, dire circumstances like what we're seeing right now bring the business to its knees. But if you do your homework and you correctly assess your risk when you're writing the check, you're going to get your money back. If you fall in love with a story and you fall in love with a capital, then that's when your default rate starts. I was on the phone with a capital provider last week and he said something that I loved. And you know, I'm going to steal his phrase, which is on the equity side, was great businesses are bought, they're not sold. Mm. And I love that. I think that really encapsulates the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually taking a note on that one. That does encapsulate that. With that perhaps final piece of advice and looking that we're wrapping up on time here, do you have any last points that you'd like to share with the audience? And to add to that, where can the audience follow your work and get in touch with you if they're looking to raise some debt? or equity? Yeah, absolutely. I think my last thought or or what I really want to share with everybody, and as I'm looking right now at the markets on the TV in my office, is hold tight and there's going to be a lot of great opportunities once we make it out of this situation. There's going to be a lot of great opportunities to acquire businesses, to maybe merge businesses, to create joint ventures and all of that. And there's going to be a lot of capital waiting on the other side of the tunnel. But as you mentioned earlier, and, and I'm going to fill your recommendation, it's start thinking about it right now. Now that your business is down and you don't have that many clients calling you and you probably unfortunately had to already let go of part of your staff and your days are a little bit quieter and slower than usual, start thinking about how much money do I need to get to where I was? How much money do I need to get to where I want to be? And then start reaching out to 
advisors, you know, ask around, et cetera. If you want to reach out to us, my email is ilia at dvdpartners.com. And ilia is I-L-I-Y-A at dvdpartners.com. Uh, you can also go to our website and, you know, look me up in Ilya Zogovich and uh, LinkedIn. Always happy to connect. And yeah. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely, I'll put all that information in the show notes. And Ilya, I want to thank you for your time. This has been really interesting, especially in a crisis we're in. I think there's some great advice here. So I look forward to sharing this. I think it'll be well received. Thank you so much for inviting me, Corey. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.